I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome once again to Q Commentator, episode 5 of our third series, and my name is Nick Heath. Pleased to be back with you once again, and if you tuned into the last episode to hear Steve Cram, well, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Annie Day was one listener who got in touch to say that she listened to Steve Cram while tidying the shed. Uh, Annie said, it made the job much more bearable. What a lovely guest. So many great insights and so generous with his time. Right move to keep it long. Great podcast. Thanks. Um, So there you go. Uh, Proof that, uh, well, Q Commentator can make tidying the shed a bit more bearable. Uh, (laughs) No, I appreciate the uh, the message, Annie. Really glad you enjoyed it. Uh, Lorna Kyle also got in touch. Thank you, Nick. I really enjoyed your chat with Steve Cram. I will now always be checking who gets a good start in the 100 metres. Yes, did they or not? Uh, It was a lovely detail, wasn't it? Uh, Thank you, Lorna. Glad you enjoyed it. As always, you can keep in touch via Twitter using at QCommentator or at NickHeathSport to find me. Uh, The gold stars, though, only get given out to those of you who leave a review on iTunes. There are tons of you listening out there via iTunes, but only a handful of reviews. So um, I'd be really grateful if you can spare the time. Thank you in advance. To this week's guest then, another man I'd not met until I set up to record in his back garden, um, but someone who, like every one of my guests, frankly, was incredibly warm, and as you'll hear, uh, who made me laugh an awful lot. Um, This is a real giggle of a a listen. Um, It was for me anyway. Uh, A man who had, well, quite the rocketing start to his career, uh, interviewing the likes of Muhammad Ali, bringing boxing to the airwaves in such a manner that, well, our previous guest, Nick Mullins, used to listen to him broadcasting from under the duvet um that's nick under the duvet not our guest broadcasting under the duvet you know what i mean um some athletics but now mainly football and a profile that was built to great effect in the uk but that has gone on to win new fans in the usa as well um largely down to one fortuitous match commentary as you will hear uh, this is is i think one of the best episodes of q commentator uh with a man who gets it who is incredibly good at it, but also who is so clearly willing to keep learning so he can be even better at it, Um, which when you look at his CV tells you an awful lot about the sort of attitude that gets you to the top. Come with me for what was such an enjoyable hour's chat or so. Uh, Q commentator, Mr. Ian Dark. Hi, Nick. Hi, Ian. How are you? 
Yeah, pretty well actually. I'm sitting here in the in the garden. I'm getting used to broadcasting from home this year. <laughs> yeah, it certainly has been uh, has been a year for a few new firsts, hasn't it? Um, yeah, the uh, the clouds are rolling over our head. Um, it's one of these kind of showery days, uh, so hopefully we won't have to worry too much about it. But uh, you know, we, if if suddenly everything clatters, then the heavens have opened. But we should be good. Um, I've got here, born in Portsmouth. Um, my second bullet point on my research tells me you, you began a broadcasting career at BBC Radio Leicester in 75, moving to the BBC's national network in 79, at which point you were covering soccer, boxing and athletics. Um, to give us a picture of how broadcasting became your career, can you tell me where and how it, it first featured? It first featured at school, I'm told, and I don't have any recollection of this, by my old school friends who I still see for the odd game of golf that I used to do commentaries on house football matches into a milk bottle. (laughs) Um, I completely disown that story, but they tell me it's true and they swear it's true. Later, when I was 18, I was a a news reporter, journalist. I wanted to be a journalist and, and, and covered news on the Portsmouth Evening News. And one day... The news editor got a phone call saying, we need somebody to come down and commentate on a Portsmouth game. Well, I was only 18, and they said, you're pretty keen on, on Pompey. Go, to, go down and see if you can do it. Wow. So I did, and um, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but you know, I didn't really take up broadcasting for another 10 years after that. Yeah, okay. And the milk bottle, is that because it sort of created some, <laughs> some sort of return resonance or something? Yeah, well, we used to practice uh, singing rock songs and, and, the, and the latest chart singles okay. from the 60s Excellent. Uh, into milk bottles at the time. But I, I converted it to commentary. <laughs> <laughs> Ian Dark and the milk bottles. It's got a certain ring to it. Um, what about your own sporting acumen? Were you, uh, were you involved in sport? Did you like to play? Um, well, I went to school uh, at a grammar school in Amersham in, in Buckinghamshire. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yep, I, I wasn't bad. I, I captained the school first team and I, I got to play for the, the county schools team. And I wanted to be a professional footballer, but the truth was, and I found out really playing at county level against the better counties, that I wasn't really going to cut it uh, as a professional. So, uh, yeah, not bad. And I play a, a bit of cricket, village cricket. I played that nearly all my life. Uh, and I'm quite a keen golfer, but not that good at it. Yeah, OK. <laughs> um, so, I mean, 18 when you're stepping into the mic at that stage. But uh, but obviously then you say it sort of the career blossomed 10 years after that. Um, as I say, Radio Leicester and then uh, and then moving on to to the BBC's national network. I mean, what did you what did you think of, of your voice in the early days? I hated listening to myself back on air and I, I bet you a lot of broadcasters will tell you the same thing they don't want to hear themselves a recoil in horror what at would, the very what, thought and what would you hear then what what would you not want to hear when you're saying that well I think you all you hear of uh, the imperfections and maybe the flatness and you would compare yourself to other rich resonant voices that you hear on the radio and think I'm not really good enough I've got a lot of improving to do. There's not enough gears there. There's not enough texture to the voice, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, So you develop, I I wouldn't call it an inferiority complex, but something like that. When I first went to to work for BBC Radio Sport, a bit of background, I'd spent all my life listening to Sports Report from when I was a little kid. I loved the programme. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. I knew all the names of all the people there, Brian Butler, Peter Jones, Des Lynham, Jim Rosenthal, Gerald Williams, they were all heroes to me. So so to walk into that room 
and work alongside them. And the first time I was broadcasting and queued in Peter Jones, I remember thinking, he must be thinking, what's this little sprog doing here? Who is he? And is he going to be good enough to work here alongside me? I mean, that's what you think. Yeah. I mean, you quickly make the adjustment uh, in time. But it is it is quite um, a frightening thing, really. Mm, yeah. Well, well, what was that next stage then in terms of that 10 years later? Um, what what was that move into into broadcasting then at that point? Well, I, w- I was Radio Leicester where I first got a job in broadcasting. And I, and I only got that job because I'd been the chief reporter at the age of 23 on a weekly paper in Lincolnshire called the Stamford Mercury. Um, and in a way, I kind of hoodwinked the BBC interviewers because they looked at that and thought, oh, this guy must be good. He's the chief reporter at 23. It's a chief, what chief they meaning- didn't know, that they were, I was in charge of three people even younger than me. <laughs> um, and basically, we wrote wedding reports and there wasn't very much news in Stamford. But anyway, I got the job on BBC Radio Leicester on the back of that and, and kind of learned my trade there. And it was it was great fun. Yeah. I mean, you talk about, you mentioned a minute ago, you know, I wasn't sure I had the text and the and the resonance and all this sort of stuff you remember being aware enough of those qualities of, of voice delivery at the time to feel you didn't have them yes yeah and that's a, that's a good point because there there always should be i think for all of us in, in broadcasting a self-assessment a self-criticism i don't think you should beat yourself up but you should be aware i think of your qualities or lack of qualities as well and and you often listen to other broadcasters and think that's that's a nice touch. I wish I could acquire that. Mm. Um, so I think along the way, imperceptibly, without even knowing you're doing it, you try to pick up some of the good habits and lose some of the bad ones. Mm. And I think some of it probably comes with age as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I think... Um, some of that natural deeper resonance, I mean, particularly. Yeah, I think you, your, your, your voice naturally relaxes. I think if you the more you broadcast the more easy you are in front of a microphone, which is why you sometimes, and you may get these letters as well, Nick, as a broadcaster yourself, uh, from young people asking you, how do I get into it? What advice have you got? And I think one of the best bits of advice, really, for any young broadcaster is is to just get a, a very simple tape machine and just practice talking into a microphone. Just get used to doing that and the very act of, of of speaking into the microphone and your voice will in time relax yeah yeah absolutely um ian's early career then saw him as the man to bring us world cup coverage from the likes of argentina for the 78 world cup mexico 82 i mean you were often running um you were also covering major fights such as Muhammad Ali against Larry Holmes at Caesars Palace, is that right? Um, yes. In 1980, Marvin Hagler against Thomas Hearns, 1985. Yeah, I didn't do the 78 World Cup. Oh, just, did you just not? To oh, I, did, the... I did the 82 World Cup in, okay. in Spain. That was my first one. But you're quite right about Muhammad Ali. Yeah. So that was the very first fight I ever covered. So Good grief, was it, it? It was the very first fight because <laughs> Desmond Lynham used to be the, the BBC radio boxing commentator and of course he went on to the wonderful career he had in television he was leaving radio for tv around that time he couldn't do that fight um we weren't doing the commentary we were just doing reports from america and at the time all i was doing is things like the third and fourth division roundup on sports report i was pretty much the junior but i did have a bit of a handle and a bit of an interest in boxing right uh, might have been the only person around i think every, you know 32 other people had flu or something and i'm walking past the <laughs> i'm walking past the desk one day and the editor says to you. me uh 
Hey, Ian, um, you're off to America next week to cover the Muhammad Ali fight. And I was, you could have knocked me down with a feather. I bet. Uh, so that was incredible. I'd never been to America. I'd never been to Las Vegas. I'd never covered a fight. Wow. Um, and there I was covering Muhammad Ali in one of his final fights. A very, very sad occasion. But of course, you know, if you've covered Ali first time out, it's all downhill from there, isn't it? Well, yeah, there, <laughs> there is a touch of that. So, so boxing appeared on the on the sort of register of sports that you were then covering, certainly, um, and and football had been a part of it. Those those seemed to sort of both be rising up together at that point. Uh, boxing mainly to begin with, uh, they got the idea after I'd done that Muhammad Ali fight, and I made a, a pretty good job of it i got the interview with muhammad ali out there so you know that was the first that yeah, was tick. the first feather in the cap yeah tick uh <laughs> good story about that really because i turned up and interrupted the training session not knowing it in my naivety asked angelo dundee the trainer um i said could at some point in the week do you think muhammad would do an interview with me uh and of course they loved england because the british boxing board of control had not stripped Muhammad Ali of the world title for his I not see. taking okay. the draft for Vietnam. So he shouted out to Ali, who was shadow boxing in the ring. He he shouts out to him and says, <laughs> and says, Muhammad, we've got a guy from England here. And Ali starts into this talk about England's the only place they know about boxing. England's the only place they know about boxing. We're going to talk to the guy from England. Let's get the guy from England. And I wasn't ready for the interview wow. or anything. I had like I had to put tape in the machine and fumble. And, yeah, and and, and, and he's and coming at because he did. He, you know, he did. He did the interview. I didn't have to interview him. He just <laughs> yeah. he just performed. So yeah, that was the story of that. Um, <laughs> that was an amazing trip. Yeah, that sounds like it. And and. A career at that point, then, where you're you're working at BBC Radio Sport. Um, you know, for those uh, not in the know, a lot of the, the sports coverage going out on Radio Two at the time. Uh, you mentioned some of the names there that were familiar from Sports Report. Who were the sort of the peers that you were working in and around at that time? Well, those names I've mentioned: um, Desmond Lynham, who's probably would be a contender, wouldn't he, for the greatest sports broadcaster mm. of all time? Yeah, I think he'd be right up there in the argument. Uh, Jim Rosenthal, fantastic presenter. Mike Ingham, who was a contemporary of me. Peter Brackley was my big mate. Sadly, he's no longer with us, mm. um, and we all miss him to this day. Tony Adamson, uh, young Gary Richardson was coming through. He's now he's now a veteran. <laughs> uh, look at our Gerald Williams, Ian Robertson, Chris Ray, or you'll know from your, uh, yeah. your rugby rugby special. Contacts. Yeah. Yep. Um, and many others, Brian Butler, wonderful wordsmith, and, and Peter Jones, who is the consummate pro, debonair, and you know a, a beautiful voice. And mm. Sadly, he died with a microphone in his hand at the yeah. boat race. Yeah, yeah indeed. Um, you mentioned Des Lynham. My, I think my favourite Des moment was when Frank LeBeouf was being interviewed at the end of a game, and it, actually his kid had come onto the field. So he's yeah. holding the kid, and the kid's trying to sort of grab the microphone while he's doing his post-match interview, and it cuts back to the studio, and Des just said, Frank LeBeouf there with uh, Le Spare Rib, which I just <laughs> thought was a lovely oh, line. Yeah, he's, yeah he, he was... Des, Des was brilliant, really. Yeah. Those uh, those little asides. Shouldn't you be at work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, Nineteen ninety comes around. There's a World Cup in uh, Italy, wasn't it? Italian ninety. Yes. Um, and uh, and Eurosport come knocking. And and having spent so many years in in radio, this was the period that that TV started to appear. Yeah, I'd, I'd done a lot. I'd been ten years at, at radio by that time, and I'd fulfilled an ambition of actually presenting Sports Report 
for a year, which is a surreal experience, saying those words that I'd listened to since I was seven years old. Out of the it's, theme tune, ultimately. Yeah, out of the, out of the blue theme tune and, and saying the, the words, it's five o'clock, time for sports report, actually does really, you know, the old cliche, make the hairs on the back of your neck yeah. stand on end. So, yeah, I'd done that. I got a television chance, really, because I did a bit of athletics commentary, and Eurosport asked me to do athletics on the Grand Prix circuit for a year, Adrian Metcalf, who was the boss there. So I, I did that, and that's how I got into TV, and, and they offered me a job, and they, they found out I could do football as well and they found out i could do some boxing as well they didn't yeah. know that when they signed me <laughs> i don't think so i ended up doing it yeah i did italia 90 and that was the first tv football i did how did you find the shift from radio to tv quite difficult really because obviously on radio you're talking all the time you have to feel every second otherwise it's dead air and the signals start going wonky mm. and uh, the engineers <laughs> start asking questions so you all i think everybody who makes that move talks too much so that move of having to now you're supplementing the pictures and let's tell people something they can't see mm. um yeah and and there's an element of of the intimacy of radio we we spoke to nick mullins uh of course you mentioned listening to darky under the under the duvet you're covers. aging me now <laughs> <laughs> apologies for that but yeah, it sounds bad doesn't it? i know yeah um which i may have referenced to him but i uh, used to listen to radio luxembourg under the bedclothes did you yeah yeah there you go um i mean how kind of i mean obviously doing these kind of boxing the boxing matches while you were um working on radio and and then just before you made that transition i mean were you had you got to a point of feeling fairly established and fairly comfortable and 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 knowing that there were these audiences that were tuning into you in this way yes i think by that stage you, i felt more at home and and part of the establishment at BBC Radio. But that did take a time. I certainly had to, to earn my stripes a little bit. And I, I probably did that on that Muhammad Ali fight because I came back and everybody said, you did a great job on that. And then I think I was looked at in a different way. Then I started to feel that I actually belonged there. And over time, got more and more opportunities and, and, and became, I suppose even a reasonably senior figure so but I've always been somebody really who believed in in you know, the television chance came along it wasn't a lot lot more money and it wasn't like being offered a job on BBC television sport or anything like that it was it was year of sport so it could have all gone belly up but I thought come on let's roll the dice yeah relatively stage. unknown I guess at that stage weren't they yeah unknown and and, and I mean it's very professional organization now but i think it's fair to say in those days it was a bit kind of hit and miss and rough and ready the way they 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 put the things together and sort of threw them on air but you learn quickly i remember doing one afternoon where we spoke about nothing but the world uh championships women's discus qualification for two hours the only <laughs> event in the students in the stadium me and Stuart's story so you've got to be quite inventive to fill two hours on the women's discus qualification yeah wow well, i'd love to well i'm not sure i would love to no, hear I think that, we but... probably ended up with an audience of two <laughs> rel relatives of the contestants you effectively made your debut on tms for two hours by uh, in that sort of event by the sounds of it um so, yeah, so moving on to TV then, as you say, it, it is, as, as we've heard from, from a few other guests, it's that nature of of you're allowed to let the pictures breathe and you need to be bringing a bit more to it. Did it change your preparation? Um, not greatly. I, I think 
it's kind of the same job. You, you've got you've got to prepare for the game. You've got to prepare for different eventualities. You've got to know what the stories are. You've got to read around the game, find out what the subplots might be. Um, simple stuff, simple background, really biographical stuff on the on the players concerned when i used to cover boxing a lot of that was just hanging around really hanging around the gym just talking to trainers or assistant trainers and even other other reporters and you'd you'd pick up ideas Mm. um as you were going through the week and you're you're almost like a sponge Mm. i mean nick you've done commentary too so you know that you pick up these ideas and then suddenly in the in the match itself as you're actually commentating that very scenario you'd been talking about in the bar over a beer with one of the other reporters comes out yeah. in the fight or the fo- or the or the football match, and you're able to maybe just you hope add a little shaft of light onto that particular scene. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Actually, I had a moment a few years ago where it was a period where the gigs weren't coming for over the, over the course of a few weeks as a freelancer and I, I thought well I'm not earning any money so I'd better not be out on the road too much and spending money so I'll just kind of lay low and do what I can from home and I and I realized that I was actually feeling quite disconnected from everything and so I just said look go out and spend the week going around to a few more of the stadiums and a few more go to more, more of the press days and by being out and about and and like you say, hanging around, chatting to the players who actually I'd not seen for a couple of weeks. They were like, oh, hey, Nick, how are you? I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, this is going on and this is interesting. And, and suddenly just picked up an awful load of information just from pushing myself to be out and about. It didn't really cost me much just to, you know, put a few quid in the tank of petrol and, and, and get about. But the feeling of, of that knowledge base, that sponge you talk about, that meant by the time I then came to, to do my next gig, I felt, fully up to speed I knew the nuances of how certain players felt about things what coaches were trying to do um yeah I think I think you're absolutely right um it does make like deep background isn't it yeah yeah it is um 1992 then the uh, the shiny arrival of uh, of one sky sports um you're uh, you end up in there um just uh, just in the in the nip of martin tyler um and uh, and I wondered whether I mean, I'm not quite sure exactly what what Sky would have been like when it when they first started, but but whether the machine of sort of support that I know it became for broadcasters was there at that stage, and whether whether that affected your approach to to broadcasting in terms of knowing that actually, well, there's now a bank of researchers that are helping me with this information, and there's 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 people who can feed me bits and pieces. Well, there were researchers who, who were giving you stat packs mm. on the games, and uh, I won't hide from it that they're very useful because those guys, it's their is their living mm. and their and their life to keep all those facts and figures facts and figures i could i could never keep but i do believe you can you can overdo stats i mean they should just be a little seasoning i think on top of the commentary the stories are more interesting but um to answer your question about going into sky sports in those days as it first started out what i remember most about it is that the rest of the world i think all the national newspapers barring the ones owned by murdoch uh, had daggers drawn, there was a feeling this was an outrage. Right, that football is going off. Yeah, okay. Terrestrial TV, and it's being taken over by who are these people mm. who have taken it over and just offered this obscene amount of money? And the Premier League have taken the money. Who are they? So there was a lot of pressure. I used to do the Monday night commentaries. Martin Tyler did the the Super Sunday, as they called it, mm-hmm. games. I was on the Monday night commentaries. 
And I remember the boss saying to me in the tunnel at Manchester City before the first game, don't this up. Right. No pressure. So, yeah, no pressure. <laughs> just what you want to be told. <laughs> just what you want to be told 20 minutes before the kickoff. <laughs> uh, so I was doing it with Andy Gray. Um, but I think people quite quickly realised that Sky actually did improve the coverage. I'm not saying the commentary was better. I wouldn't be, be that arrogant about it. But certainly the production. Oh, yeah. There were more cameras. There were other angles. Um, well, it changed the game, really. Yeah, and people started to realise, well, this is good. They are covering it well. Um, and that quite quickly changed. But there was there was that pressure. And there was that, pr- and there was a pressure, too, from within, as, as I've described. If you didn't do a good commentary, you kind of quite quickly got to know about it um, Did you? I, yeah i remember that i remember vic wakeling who was the boss then um ringing me up one day and saying i'd, I'd had quite a bad game i did i think it was blackburn whose numbers were almost indecipherable red numbers on blue and white halves under not very good floodlights that he would park in okay, those days yeah. um uh, yeah, i hadn't been at my best and he said well what was wrong with you last night that was i got a phone call first thing in the morning wow. um he was kind enough two weeks later to ring me up again and say you were great last night. Yeah. And so, but there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, analysis of what you do, and maybe there's not quite enough of that these days. Well, it's been a running theme of of a lot of the the chats we've had is that feedback is 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 hard to find, and so it's interesting to to hear that actually mm. there were people that were listening and watching. Well, I think it's one of the problems if you become a, 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 a inverted commas senior broadcaster who's been working for a long time, and I have now, that maybe younger producers don't want to pick up the phone and say, why did you do that last night? Or maybe more diplomatic than that. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and you, you might want to listen back to that. You're saying such and such a phrase rather too much. Hmm. That doesn't kind of go on. I think really it's a hire and fire business quite a ruthless business really if they like you they keep on hiring you and if they don't they don't offer you another contract uh, and it can be as as cutthroat as that i think tv sport is quite a quite a ruthless world yeah in fact I mean, you spoke about the difference between radio and tv radio i think everybody who ever worked at it will say it was more fun it was much more casual we, there was a lot of banter in the office we used to play, we, we used to do the quarter to seven sports desk on on the radio and, and we'd play cr- t- cricket down the down the office <laughs> afterwards i remember the controller of radio two walked in one day and everyone was playing cricket christopher martin jenkins <laughs> cricket correspondent he's there wicket keeping um and the controller of radio two walked in the door and we thought oh my god we're in trouble here uh, and chris martin jenkins said to him you couldn't do a silly mid-off could you sir <laughs> <laughs> brought the house down but it yeah did. it was great i mean ra- radio was great fun and i'm still you know good mates with with Mike Kingham and, and Gary Richardson and Ron Jones. And, right. Yeah, I mean, uh, Graham Reed Davis, one of the producers. Yeah, mm. still still good mates with them all. Good bunch, yeah. yeah. Um, so you're, you're in the groove then at, at Sky Sports at that stage, and like you say, doing those Monday nights. So to talk about, to talk about sort of how things felt while, while you're at that point in your career and, and in commentating, how would you describe your voice and commentary style? Uh, probably a little bit too excitable. Um, a sort of quite good. I I would say at getting the drama out of. I would quite good. My background was newspapers, editorial, so I knew a story, mm. and 
you get the the most out of a story that occurs in in a, in a game, and I think that's good advice. I, I remember reading Brian Moore, great commentator, his book, and he was saying that you sometimes a game will game will be pretty dull or quite modest fare, but if there is a story, you should pounce on it mm. and, and 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 wring the very most out of it. So I think I was I was quite good at that. I was a bit overexcitable. I sometimes gabbled a little bit too much in my excitement. If I'm being ultra critical, but if I listen back to those games now, uh, probably in truth, I was better then than I am now. <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting thing to say. Well, that's yeah. So I mean, I don't want to dr- drill too deep into that, but why would you say that? I don't know. It's just a feeling. Feeling I have. Maybe the voice was was younger and had a bit more vibrancy. I don't know. Maybe maybe that maybe that's an age thing. But mm-hmm. uh, if I was being ultra critical and, and and very honest, I think that's that's probably true. I'd be interested to hear what other commentators thought of that. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of bearing your soul a little. <laughs> well, it is. Yeah, but you know the the it, the, uh, the the psychiatrist couch reference during Q <laughs> yes. commentator has been made before, so uh, you're not alone in that. Um, how would you treat your voice? How would you look after it? Would you would you prepare? Would you warm up? Any of this sort of stuff? Uh, I don't tend to go in for that sort of thing. I know some commentators do. I, Martin Tyler told me once he never drank coffee on the on the day of the game because he thought the the granule somehow got on your your vocal cords. Dried him out. I've never really found that i always have a, i always have a, like a bottle of water or or some tea around mm-hmm. um i hate doing a commentary if I've, I've got a cold or i feel like i'm getting a cold and i might mm. do you, feel like i need to sneeze in the in the in the middle of the game of course if you've got a lip mic you can always just put the lip mic a long way away from you and do that but you like to feel in in tip-top condition so i like i like to get a good night's sleep if I if I can, I don't like to drive to the games because that's quite tiring. At the moment, we're having to do that because of the protocols after the yeah. COVID nineteen outbreak. Uh, so usually, I'd get the train, or nowadays they they do offer us cars. They'll they'll drive you to the games, but that that is a luxury, and we're we're mollycoddled a bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you've got a cold coming or if you're feeling that are there have you got uh, Ian Dark's home remedies that you uh, <laughs> that you go to to try and avoid it now just the normal stuff over the over the chemist counter but i always get one bad cold uh, every football season it's usually at the start of november i always seem to know when it's coming uh, and i dread it and i had one really awful day in front of the microphone where i i was doing a league cup tie at stevenage uh Early in the season it was, and I, I was kind of tossing a coin whether to ring up and say, "Do you know what? I think I probably probably should not good enough to do it today." But then I, I took a, you know, I took some Beecham's powders or whatever you took in those days, and um, I turned up. But in the hour before the game, my voice really went seriously downhill. Right, and I said to Tony Gale, or I croaked to Tony Gale, Gale alongside <laughs> me, and said to him, "You're going to have to do most of this because I'm struggling badly here." Mm. So it, was a, it was an embarrassing one. Yeah, okay. I mean, I was going to ask if you had any moments it's let you down. That seems to be one. That, that was the one. Yeah, yeah. And the other, the, I mean, every commentator will tell you they've they've done commentaries. It's a bit like footballers. They will tell you that they play quite often with a niggle. Mm. Uh, most weeks, some kind of injury. I think all top performers and just battle on through. And I think we we have to do that as well. You don't always feel a one. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, what about the prep? Are you encyclopedic with your prep? Will you put several hours in? Are you a hand writer? Where, where does uh, how, how does that work? Always handwritten. Yeah, I know younger commentators and, and like Sam Matterface. Uh, he has his all kinds of computer wizardry where he moves things around when substitutions are made, and uh, it's brilliant. But I, I always think, being quite quite old school, I guess, um, what happens if the batteries run out? <laughs> what, happens, yeah. what happens if the power goes or the Wi-Fi doesn't work or something? So, no, I handwrite everything. And of course, to the process of handwriting things down, you almost consign them to your head as well. So every week with the Premier League... I write down, I keep a book of every result, who played, little ticks, mark out who got the goal. Just on the games you're li- doing. A little line about what the story of that game was in case I need to refer to it in future. So I've got that going all the way back to the first season of the Premier League. Um, and is that, is that just on the games you're doing? No, on the whole, on on the the whole, whole Premier League. Every, every game played in the Premier League. Because you never know what teams you're going to be yeah. covering as, as so the season goes So you've got the team on. sheets from every games. Yep, I've got the team sheets. I've, I've got my own team sheets and keep my own and records. How, how many hours will game. that take you then a week? Um, maybe not as many as you would think. So on a Monday morning, probably two, two or three hours of just getting the book up to date again. And, and I'll do a lot of reading as well. I'll buy quite a few newspapers and and read the stories, and I might make it, I might make notes. There might be a nice feature about such and such a player with a few good little color lines. Recent example was there was a nice piece about Casper Schmeichel, the Leicester City goalkeeper, that during the lockdown he'd been doing singing and guitar lessons. Mm. So I was doing Leicester City against Chelsea in the FA Cup the other day, and I was able to drop that line in. So mm. I think little lines like that about players are more interesting than saying he's made 24 appearances this season and kept six clean sheets, <laughs> and to which people at home would probably go, so what? <laughs> I mean, there are too many, there are too many stats, and, and a lot of those stats contradict each other. So I'm, I'm more interested in telling a story. And, and I learned something working with ESPN in America as well, where one of the guys there said, a lot of people are watching these matches and they're saying, OK, it's, it's Poland v. Greece from the European Championship. I don't care. Mm. Why do I care? Why am I watching this? Make me root for one team or another by telling me a little story or two mm. about bring these players to life so they're not just a name. This is the guy who spends all his money paying for the, for the hospital care of his sick sister. Um, OK, now I want them to win. Yeah. So... That may be kind of quite exaggerated, but I thought there's something in that. Bring the players to life a little. You maybe don't have to do that so much with with high-profile players in the Premier League. People know them um, and read about them all the time. But if you're doing especially other teams who really would be mystery men to 90% of your audience, it's not it's not a bad idea just to give them a, a line or two to sprinkle it just to... To, to colour it up and I mean I often think the best commentaries are on the dullest games uh, if I was doing a test commentary and I was going to hire a young commentator I'd go here you are here's Burnley against I don't know <laughs> yeah. Crystal Palace um, 
a nil-nil draw in the rain at Turf Moor. I'm not nothing against Burnley or Crystal Palace before their fans start pouncing. I know what, <laughs> I know what happens with this these yeah. days. But just for example, and so, let's see, let's see how the commentator got on doing that because I know how tough those nights can be, and it's not enough just to say who's got the ball yeah. and it's still nil-nil here. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to introduce some talking points. Mm. Yeah, I've had that note myself. It's actually about finding what's in there to keep people watching and, and coming back for the second half. Those yeah, sorts you, of ne- you should never forget that. People have got so many other channels that they can they yeah. can watch. Um, if you're telling them this is a dull, or you're telling them this is a dull game, not very good. Yeah. So what why that? aren't they going to just channel hop and, and, and see something else? More and more people are doing that and they're on Twitter yeah. So it, the commentator's got a tough job. Yeah, certainly. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, we'll come on to the, the USA side shortly. Um, I just, although it's it's rarely been about sort of particular lines that commentators have said or particular moments in their career, I, I, I have to touch on 1995, Holyfield against Tyson um, and uh, and the ear bite. Um, I was watching a clip last night of uh, of that moment and your commentary, um, and I I was really, I was surprised, but don't take that offensively, but I was surprised how immediately you saw what was going on and, and I'm intrigued to sort of get into the detail of that because your line was some nasty stuff in there there seemed to be a bite almost and then as you and your your co- co-commentator sort of spoke it was only 12 seconds later that you said he bit his ear and, and absolutely confidently and I, I was intrigued to find out whether other eyes around the ring or via TV and your producer clarified that 100% for you or whether you were in a position to have seen it better than perhaps the initial camera angle we saw. What can you remember of that? <laughs> I'd like to give you a definitive answer. Well, fine. The true answer is I don't honestly remember. Well, that's fine. I don't fine. honestly remember a lot of uh, the commentary incidents and how they happened. But, it's a, but I've I watched just... a lot of boxing 
And I could see really from Holyfield's outraged reaction that something very untoward yeah. had happened. It wasn't just like a low blow or something like that you get. In yeah, he was outraged, fights. wasn't he? It was, he was outraged, and it t- takes a lot to get Evander Holyfield outraged. Um, so I knew something odd had gone on, and I suspected that there had been a bite. And so I kind of went for it. Yeah. Um, and maybe that was just the instinct and experience of, of watching a, uh, watching a lot a lot of fights over a, a long period of time. You always wonder with something like that, you know it's going to be worldwide headlines the next day. It's one of those when you when you're commentating, you think this is front page news. What's ha- what's happening here? You'd better be good on this. So, yeah, I was quite glad that I I had called it um, as it happened. And, of course, they, they labelled that fight the bite of the century. Indeed, yeah. yeah. I mean, and that is interesting because we've spoken to, to commentators about big moments and, and finding the line at the right time and moments where you might have a couple of notes or a line prepped or two. But I certainly know that if if I've watched an outrageous try put together that's about to be finished, it would be quite good if my mind can throw me a pretty damn good line yeah, yeah. because people are probably going to watch this a few times. And, and you were conscious at that moment I I better nail this. Yeah, that's right. And the, and the other time I felt like that, well, there have been a few, but the other time I remember feeling that was I was commentating on the radio for the, for the Ben Johnson 100-meter race in Seoul, which, wow. of course, has become labelled the dirtiest race in history mm. because I think all but one of the competitors got done at one time or another for drug-taking, but we didn't know that at the time. Mm. Um, it was Ben Johnson. It was Carl Lewis. It was the event of the Seoul Olympics, the whole world was going to watch this 10 seconds unfold. And I was doing the radio commentary, and I was thinking then, you have got to get this right. And, of course, in a 10-second 100-meter commentary, you've probably got about 30 words to to, to, to do that. So I was happy with that one as well because Johnson won easily. Uh, We know he was on rocket fuel now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> from Carl Lewis, and I, I managed to pick up the Linford Christie to storm through and got the bronze medal for Britain. You wouldn't want to have missed that mm. uh, as well. So, yeah, that that was a big one. And you, you sometimes you walk away with a feeling of self-satisfaction. Most of the times you, you walk away from the commentary thinking, uh, why did I say that? Or why didn't I bring that point in? Um, so you're never totally satisfied. But I was then. Yeah, well, that's good. We we heard from uh, from Steve Cram earlier in this series uh, about uh, the little save-all phrases. He got a good start or he didn't start well and how he had sometimes would have would have athletes come up to him after and say, well, I didn't have a very good start. It's just like, well, I know, but I needed that one and a half seconds so that I could then see how the field was. <laughs> looking yeah. out the blocks would yeah. would would you sort of agree that those little moments are quite handy to just cover yourself before you've actually got something you can really see to call yeah because it, i think i always admire horse racing commentators you know if they've got i don't know 30 runners the width of the track mm. at ascot <laughs> in the Wokingham handicap uh you've got to pick out those colors straight away and so they i noticed they've got a, quite a good technique of and they just say they're off to an even break here in the 2020 running of the Wokingham Handicap at Ascot. <laughs> so already they've covered get, getting on for half a furlong and they can just 
but that's fine. That's just a, a, a clever little yeah. technique to get get you underway. We all need that. Yeah, little devices like that are, are really key. Uh, spoken to Mike Costello as well. Obviously, he's uh, he's a, a well-renowned boxing commentator as well. Um, has has your prep changed for boxing matches over the years? Has there been any more focus on them that's felt like you've needed to, to change how you do it? Not really, no. I don't, I don't do it anymore because... Um, I don't have the time to mm. do football and boxing. You could do that at one stage, but the fo- football has become all time-consuming now. And when I moved to BT Sport, um, I they didn't have any boxing at their stage. They asked me when they got something if I'd like to do it, and I said, no, I don't think I want to go back to it. But mm. to, to go back to your question, no, it, it always involved really... Um, We'd, so we were doing a big fight in Las Vegas. We'd fly usually on the Monday or Tuesday if we could early in the week. We'd do countdown shows, yep. usually building up to it on, on Sky. So we were quite busy. But that meant we got the chance, being there nearly all week, to talk to a lot of people. I mean, I've been invited to have beers with you know, <laughs> Eric Morales in his hotel room. Come up, have a beer with me. I was like, you're fighting. You can't have a beer. <laughs> yeah, well, he did. He was Mexican. You know, he didn't care. Uh, it was... <laughs> um, Evander, Evander Holyfield once invited me into his suite on the eve of the fight. Wow. At Caesar's Palace. I got a call from the editor saying, can you get another uh, clip from Evander Holyfield? I said, no. I said, he's just, they've had the weigh-in. All that happens after the weigh-in is they go back to the room and the next thing is the fight. No, no, see if you can get him. So I rang his hotel room thinking that some, one of his sort of team would answer the phone. And, and he said, this is Evander Wow. I said, uh, I said, my editors asked me if I could get one more clip with you before the fire. I said, completely understand if you know you don't want to do that. No, no problem at all. But I just thought I'd ask. Yeah, come around. We're just about to have some tea. <laughs> so we sat there. It was ridiculous. I never in Evander Holyfield's suite. Oh, but it was a hell before. of a suite. It was. It was the six million dollar suite at Caesar's Palace. It was, wow. it was more like a palace. Yeah. Um, so I sat there with him, and he, he did another interview and was quite happy. So weird things happened by just being around, you know, like we'd hang out we'd, outside gyms with Mike Tyson. And all the time you're learning and, and putting stuff together. So I'm to say, that was interesting. And, like, I'd work with somebody like Jim Watt or Glenn McCrory, you know, both great co-commentators on the boxing, and they'd pick up something as ex-pros and say, Jim would say to me something like, did you notice at that press conference? He'd say, did you notice? He didn't say he was going to win. Mm. He, he doesn't think he's going to win this fight. Yeah, okay. And I, so I think that, yeah, so that is interesting. Yeah, you know, he didn't, did he? Yeah. Uh, Lovely little bits like that. Little bits of, yeah, yeah. Um, so you left Sky in 2010 after a spot of commentary on, uh, on the US goal against Algeria uh, in the 2010 <laughs> FIFA World Cup for ESPN, which, uh, which seemed to lead nicely into a three-year contract with them. I mean, how much did that goal land you that gig? I think it probably did, <laughs> truth to tell. Yeah. Um, so I'd worked for Sky Sports for the best part of 20 years at that stage, but I was out of contract with them, and I went to that World Cup as a kind of guest commentator for ESPN. And Martin Tyler um, wanted to do the England games at that World Cup. He was very much their, their lead guy. I was one of the su- support commentators. And they said, well, would you do the USA games for us? So I think, well, that's a good that's a good offer because we're broadcasting to America and it's the USA. That's a decent audience. <laughs> yes, yeah. So uh, I did the USA games and, yeah, they were going out the World Cup, uh, final game, last game, 93rd minute. They were going to finish bottom of the group unless they could score against Algeria. They did. I mean, in the most dramatic 
fashion. I mean, he's become a pretty iconic goal. And I think it actually did convert a lot of young American guys to the game. They mm. got it then mm. that there could be there could be 93 minutes with not much happening, and then this moment that transformed and changed everything. So I somehow in the middle of that, I actually said the words, and don't ask me to this day how I said them. And I'm almost now kind of ashamed I said them, <laughs> but they were right at the time. I said, "Go, go, USA!" Yeah. Um, and that obviously <laughs> meant something to Americans because I was bombarded afterwards with calls from local radio stations in America about uh, about this commentary. Right, um, and they're saying, you know, it's one of the it's one of the the greatest lines of commentary we've ever had, and all the, all this. So I was like, I you was, sat there going. How many terrible lines of commentary have you had to date? Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> with I, all due respect. I was, yeah, no. Exactly. <laughs> I, 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 you would say now it wasn't a great line of commentary, but but I think there's a really good point here. You can hear a commentary clip today of something that happened 10, 15 years ago, or even last year, and it doesn't sound that great. But every bit of commentary is of the moment it happened in. And that was a, a wild, explosive moment. Context is everything. For, yeah, context is everything. For that audience, in that moment, I would say it was right. Yeah. And and making the USA switch then, you've got, uh, you know, I, I've, with a few clips that went out viral over, over the course of lockdown, I've done a few interviews and... And I've been able to switch into the fact that if I'm talking to them about certain things, you know, one of the silly clips I did was two guys playing football on Tooting Common. But I make sure that when I'm doing my interviews with them that I'm talking about it being in Tooting Park and that they're playing soccer and and this kind of thing. And I noticed there was a little voiceover. I saw you'd done a bit of fun where you were sort of pretending to not know what Wimbledon was all about and oh, yeah, yes. or, or, or kicking a goal up yeah, here. But, yeah. you know, and talking about the ball boys wearing short pants and this sort of thing. So... There's a terminology switch that has to be made, isn't there? Yeah, slightly, but I, I, I think now it's got to the stage with the game of soccer, as they call it. I don't think we should be shy about calling it soccer for the United States audience. When we have programs in the U, UK called Soccer Saturday and we have a very good magazine called World Soccer. Yeah. So there's a lot of silly snobbery about that. For the UK audience, it's, de- it's definitely football, but for the American audience, it, it's soccer because football to them is, is the NFL. Yeah. So that, not, not a problem. You you tailor it a little bit to the audience, but now I don't really commentate in any different way. If I'm commentating for the on the US team for ESPN, as I would do commentating on a Premier League match for BT Sport in England. Mm. How have you found doing it stateside? Really enjoyable. Um, there's a lot of travelling involved in covering the the US team. They play. All, all over. I think probably there is one little maybe style difference where they probably would like it with a, a little more energy. Uh, they're used to their commentators talking almost non-stop. I don't. Mm. I like to let the let the game breathe as you would in in Britain, and, and I you know believe in. But the the basics of of having gears and your own DNA or your own style still exist. I mean, I've been lucky in a way that the way I commentate seems to appeal to the american audience and that's just a, that's just been a lucky break in my career yeah okay and and in terms of cocoms over there is it is it a different feel yeah i think it is um i work a lot with a guy called taylor twelman um who used to play major league soccer until concussion ended his career or repeated concussions um and he is really does his homework and he's a very good broadcaster in his own his own right, um, and probably could do presentation as well. 
Because are you having to present as well as they go into commentary? Yeah, yeah, that's the difference too. Yeah, quite off, quite often on the US games, um, if it's a really big World Cup qualifier, say against Mexico, who are their grudge opponents, um, they would put a, a full team in a presenter and reporter. But sometimes on the more run-of-the-mill games, yeah, I'll be I'll be presenting the show with Taylor Twelman, um, and we'd have to turn around quickly from the microphone and then start commentating on the game that that's quite difficult because all the paraphernalia that goes on around the presentation of the game means you can't be looking at the players during the warm-up and saying okay that's him he's got red boots he's got blue those two look a bit similar Mm. you know you've done that sort of thing people forget really that on a football or, or a rugby commentary um identification of the players is 95 percent of the job if you if you can't do that you can't do it yeah were you finding that you had to sort of redress an ability to present to camera was that something you were comfortable with i did what really came in handy for me was that i presented uh, sport on 2 as it was then of course it's been five live for a, for a long time now but it was on radio 2 when i was doing it uh, so four and a half hours of presentation of a saturday afternoon mm. so i did a fair bit of, of that and all that's come in handy knowing how to link items um yeah i'm probably not a natural in front of the camera but probably good enough but we'll put it this way they've they've never turned around and said he can't do that let's get him (laughs) off Uh, not yet anyway (laughs) yeah that's good um who have you emulated over the years who are the sporting voices out there you think are, are doing good stuff i admire everybody who does commentary on on matches in in what in whatever sport because i know how hard it is and i think all the commentators will say that and i know how much work will have gone into it to get to that level just to be on national tv or, or radio so um that isn't a diplomatic answer it's an it's an honest answer yeah, that's but fair enough. there are obviously i mean i don't want to really go into into names of people i i do and and don't admire because I think it's such a subjective business, ours, isn't it? Mm. It is. I mean, one, one person's great commentators, another one's pain in the backside, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> et cetera. Uh, but I think if you if I wanted to pick one person or a couple of people, I would say Desmond Lynham. Yeah. I, I learned a lot from him. He's sort of, he had a kind of casualness around it. And I'm, I'm sure underneath he was paddling furiously like the rest of us. But he appeared to find it all so nonchalantly easy or... That's how it came across. I remember one day um, we were at Aintree at the Grand National and Desmond was presenting the show. And he had to just lead up to five o'clock in the sports report. The race had already happened and he said, it's five o'clock, time for sports report. Then he looked up at the clock and it wasn't five o'clock. It was <laughs> one minute to five. And just like that, he just carried on and said, do you know what? You might be wondering why the music didn't come in there for five o'clock and sports report. That's because it's actually one minute to five. Said, so what has to happen here is I'm going to have to fill till everybody joins us at five o'clock for sports report. Somebody will hand me a little sports item of news for you in a moment. Here it is. Some golf news from the United States where at the U.S. Open. Da, 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 da. So on he went. Really so relaxed. Yeah, so relaxed. And, and, and then he just said he said, and that is the piece of sports news. And guess what? The time is ticking round now to five o'clock. It really is time for sports report. And thought, wow, this guy's some broadcaster. Yeah. He was not thrown 
for even half a second yeah. by that. And a lot of people, I think, probably would have been. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just learned, I mean, I, I used to, in my very, very early days, uh, he would occasionally come back to do a boxing commentary and I'd have to sort of do, be doing the interviews. And he'd say, never, never beg for an interview. Never, never beg for an interview. Ask them if they want to do it. And if they don't, they don't want to do it. Mm. So, you know, you never be on, be on the back foot like that. Yeah. So, so Magnet, yeah. So Desmond, and, and, and I'm, I'm a great admirer of Jim Rosenthal as well because he was so editorially sharp. Um, you listen back to his old interviews in, in Sports Report going back when mm. he was a, a young presenter, and he's always editorially bang on the, bang on the money. But mm. there have been so very many, very many good, good broadcasters. Um, really, the standards are quite frightening. <laughs> yeah, with more competition than ever. Yes, of with great competition. It's tough, I think, for the tough for the young commentators who are, who are coming through now, because probably you know, go back thirty or forty years, there were probably only three, four, five TV football commentators. Mm. Now there are probably fifty mm. you could call on at a, at a pinch who could go out and, and and do a job on it. Yeah, um, one of the areas that I, uh, I believe you've worked on, based on my research, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, is women's matches in in, in football. Um, and and I do a lot of commentary on women's games in rugby. Um, and I've got a lot of loyalty to it. I'm pretty passionate about it, and I'm pretty passionate about representing mm. the athletes that I know and have got, got to know over, over the years very well. And, and I know when I started even speaking to them personally, they were saying, we like you doing the games because you're fair. You're not pandering to us as women playing sport, which some commentators have been in the past. And and I just wondered, more as a sort of from me to you question, but how do you feel as a guy commentating on women's sport, given how male-dominated the area of sports broadcasting has been if i'm honest i was pretty uncomfortable covering women's boxing which was my first experience of covering women's sport because i think there are medical reasons there um which make it a little bit more uncomfortable to cover so i'll be honest and i had reservations but i've covered a lot of games of the u.s women's soccer team who of course are the top team in in the world yeah and i've got to know quite a lot of the players like you have with the rugby um megan rapino and and alex morgan and and so on um and i think they've got to trust me and, and and have a chat and i've thoroughly enjoyed covering them one of the best events i covered and i i must admit i was thinking well i want what's this going to be like was the 2011 women's world cup uh which was in germany but we had a we had a great time it was relaxed and i I got great respect i even got to have a kick around with some of the old players who used to commentate and i realized how good they were because i played a bit of in, in, in my time and i was thinking yeah they're very they're very good yeah uh, they're still very good and i watched them train and was thinking yeah the stat, the standards, the standards, excellent. Of course, it's getting better and better and better all the time. So every World Cup is going to be a lot stiffer to win than mm. the one before. Mm. So it, yeah, it's fun, and it's, of course, with the US in the US, um, I think nearly every girl grows up with mum taking them to play soccer on a, on a Saturday or at the right. weekend, and so they they get a lot a lot of players to choose from. That's one of the reasons they're they're so very good. But there's big interest in the team there, mm. big interest. Yeah, I mean, I find it interesting when you know 
we're we're very aware 2020 you know with the various movements that have been across the world that uh, that certain people should be being given more opportunities and certainly I know female broadcasters that have said I don't want to be given a job for the sake of being female I want to be given the job because I'm good enough yeah um, but I it's one of those things when you realize that you're the voice could on the women's sport yeah I have a moment where I think well should there be a female voice covering this I happen to be the guy that's doing it and I back myself to do it and I know that they back me and the athletes back me but there's a little bit of consciousness that I have about that and and yeah I wondered if it figured in your mind at all not really because I commentate with Julie Foudy who used to captain the US women's team um She's comfortable with me doing it. I'm yeah. comfortable doing it. The players seem to be comfortable, and the coach certainly was because she came from Portsmouth originally, Jill Ellis. So <laughs> I, had a, I had a same place as me, so we always have yeah. a little chat about that. So, yep, yeah, not a problem, and, um, yep, long may it continue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what would you like to have commentated on that you've never had the chance to? As a sport, do you mean? Well, anything, anything that might require you know commentary. What? Well, going back in the sports I do cover, I think I'd have loved to have covered the Rumble in the Jungle. I mean, not even I am old enough to have covered that. Back in 74, mm. George Foreman and Muhammad Ali regaining the title. Was one of the most amazing sporting events, I think, that that has ever happened. Uh, I'm, so one of my passions, quite apart from... Uh, the sports that I cover is I, I love I quite like horse racing. I used to have a little share in a in a horse at one stage. I think I owned about a sixth of it. It won a couple of times. <laughs> Which bit so, was that? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the probably, probably the slowest bit. <laughs> it, it won a couple, but it lost plenty. Um, <laughs> is it, yeah, horse called protagonist. So I like. So I'd love to go and cover something like the Kentucky. Derby, yeah. as they call it, yeah. uh, that would that, at Churchill Downs, or um, wouldn't it be great to just be at the Masters Golf for four days and go around inside the ropes there? Mm. Uh, and it's a different type of commentary, that isn't it? It's it's a little oh. bit more whispered and, and back yes. of the greens and that sort of stuff. You, you fancy that? I mean, you sort of you referred to yourself as a pretty energetic commentator. Mm. That that would require a different a different tone, wouldn't it? It completely different tone, and I'd probably be quite unsuited. It's it's quite <laughs> a leap. I, I've read a lot of people reviewing TV sports commentary, who and they say things like, "Well, they've got to learn that silence is golden." Some of these people, well. The style of commentary on different sports is 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 so very different. So I would challenge I mean, Richie Benno, who of course is always held up as uh, one of the one of the the great commentators, and quite rightly too. Um, and he knew the value of of silence, but you can do that on television cricket. So I would challenge anybody to do a commentary on an eight hundred meter race at the Olympic Games mm. without talking pretty much continuously or a 100 metres and for that matter radio <laughs> radio football um, obviously some sports that you are going to be talking more but golf and tennis and cricket lend themselves to long silences I mean uh, the value of silence of course is fantastic I mean I remember one of Richie Benno's greatest lines was they had a Australia had a batsman called um, Andrew Hildage who kept getting out Uh, they bowled short to him he'd hook it down to long leg and get caught it happened for the third time in an Ashes (laughs) series and as he was walking back Richie Benno said nothing he was on commentary halfway back he just said I wonder how you spell kamikaze (laughs) 
And I just thought, what a great line. It's all it needed. And I think that the, you know, there is less is more yeah, was, was that. That's classic Ben. I mean, and, and Arla, I remember Arla too, I, I really admired a man of Hampshire like me. Um, and he, Barry Richards was slaughtering Australia, playing Hampshire against Australia. And he's slaughtering Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson, knocking them all, all around Southampton. Mm. And Arla came out with a line and just said, not so much a question of how you bowl to him, but why you even bother. <laughs> <laughs> so that's gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, if you, yeah, if you, if you, if you, if you ever can come out with lines <laughs> like that, uh, helped, helped by a nice regional accent as well. Helped obviously. by a nice, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he was, he was just a genius, wasn't he? Um, Very good. I think there are some people who are just at a level, which is sadly beyond the rest of us. Well, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I, I think for, for many out there, and, and excuse me blowing smoke, but I think, you know, you, your your career and the voices and moments that have, that you've been synonymous with and, and the, ah, oh, it's it's the it, it's a voice that I want on my football match. Is Ian Dark and and you are up there for people. So it, it oh, obviously we all, of you to say. obviously we all have the voices that that make us treasure a sporting moment. But I think there I think there is a little bit of I don't know still still gentle imposter syndrome or something going on that that maybe is is here because you know you're you're there and you're doing it, Ian. Certainly. Well, I mean, I think we're we should never ever forget that we're all so really privileged to be doing this, to be at great sporting events, describing them um, for people at home and, you know, the old ringside seat at history, etc. Uh, so if you can do that and, and people like what you do, I think we should be very, very grateful. But definitely stay humble about it because for every great commentary there have been a lot of ordinary ones <laughs> as, as well. I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah, I'm sure. Um <laughs> Just a couple more then. I mean, you sort of touched on it there, really. And, and I realise we haven't spoken an awful lot about the athletics, but given the prominence of, of football and, and boxing in your career, that, that sort of tends to be Yeah, wide, I only but... did the athletics for about three or four years. Uh, there, there might have been a point where I did, did it on the radio and there was talk I might have been... I, I got to hear that there was some talk that I might have been offered the job at BBC Television to do it when David Coleman, the great David Coleman... Um, Retire, but that that never 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 came to be. They came to their senses, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely put. But but of those sports and of and of of what you do, why do you enjoy it? I don't know. It's I think I always wanted to be from a very young age. When my dad first took me to Fratton Park to watch Portsmouth, I was I was just grabbed by the idea of sport, and I wanted to be a player like all little boys do. Um, but I wasn't good enough. So the chance to to cover it and to be among it and to mix with the people who play it at, at the kind of level we're talking about here, it, it, it's an honour, really. But I will add one thing. It is also... It is also so hard work. Yeah. I mean, pe- people talk to you and say, oh, it's a great job you've got. You know, you go and watch all these football matches talk about them i said it's not quite the same as going there and having a few beers with your mates and sort of drifting in at five to three as yeah. i prep quite hard during the week for the game um i tu- i turn up three hours before there's a lot to do yeah. out there and i and there's the pressure as you've described of, of of having to get it right having said that you know 
to, to use the old phrase, it's better than real work. Well, it is. I was just thinking because we're sat here in uh, in Ian's garden and there's a there's a goalpost yes. set up where uh, where he put a clip out recently on his social media on his Twitter <laughs> and it just made me think when you said I was a you know I wanted to be a player but I couldn't and the whole occasion brought in I wondered were you like many knocking in goals as a kid with the commentator's voice in your head so <laughs> therefore if you couldn't be the bloke knocking the goal in you could be the bloke talking about it yeah I think I used to do that as a as a kid I did used to commentate on myself yeah. a little bit in the garden I definitely remember doing that on cricket I used to throw the ball up against the wall in the back garden and then bat it back and I would pretend I was you know one of the England test players of, of, of the time and I'd go down and, and I'd write the scores in a little <laughs> book as if it was all real I'd go back to the pavilion and amazing, go, and then go and have a cup of, cup of a tea like I did <laughs> Yeah, it just crazy. that's so, fabulous. Yeah, just 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 reliving in, and living in a little sporting fantasy world. I've got a lovely vision that as I pack up and leave shortly, I'm going to leave you to re, to reenacting that once again. <laughs> I don't do it now. I've got to hastily <laughs> hastily add that, but the, yeah, maybe I do because the goal's still I know, here. I was going to say. Was, I mean, we bought the goal from my my son Robert. Um, you know, to have kickabouts in the back garden, but you know he's grown up now. Yeah. He's twenty six. <laughs> the goal's still here. Quite right <laughs> so too. Might be right. So it should be. Um, you've mentioned the likes of get out there and record yourself. Um, you've mentioned trying to find the story in something. What would be um, sort of a couple of pieces of advice if you have them to someone who might be looking to become a commentator or to improve? Um, be yourself. Don't try to be somebody else who you have grown up admiring you might take on some of the the qualities and and learn from that from that style but but have your own dna um yeah get get a microphone practice a lot practice working to time and i think the big thing is knowing know the value of silence if you want to do tv but most people are going to start in radio so that might not be uh, that might be a bit of dud advice well yeah but but the other thing i think is have gears remember light and shade and 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 never be frightened as well if you're working with a co-commentator to just have a little bit of a laugh here and there because you're a guest in somebody's living room mm. in the end at the end of the day be a, don't be a bore be quite be quite a nice guest in well it's an entertainment industry isn't it it's an entertainment industry in the end and you know people can become a little bit too relentless with it and too and too serious sometimes so while never devaluing the value of the the sporting drama that's going on it's not a crime just to raise a smile and, and have a little bit of a laugh here and there. We have about six or seven raindrops that have uh, that have yes. appeared, but we've luckily... Got, we've been lucky. We've luckily, been lucky. A indeed, day here. Indeed. We're just over an hour. And uh, and I come to my last question, Ian. It's, uh, it's been absolutely fascinating. Um, the day will arrive at some point when you're approaching your last football match, uh, your last gig. In the Q-commentator fan- fantasy world, um, it's allowed to be a week. It could be a weekend. It could be a tournament. It could be um, a single game. What would be the sort of job that you would be happy to call your last call? Well, I suppose you'd have to say a, a World Cup final with England playing in it. They nearly got to the final in 2018, I, I was working for the sort of global feed commentary mm. on the last World Cup, but uh, I wasn't on the final. Peter Drury, quite rightly, would have had had that gig. Um, but it would be great to be sitting there commentating on a World Cup final with England winning the World Cup. I, I think I'd take that, and I hope it happens. If it isn't me, for somebody else. <laughs> and I think probably 
we'd want you to bring your excitable commentary at that point. Well, it's very kind of you to say so, but whether everybody else would agree is another matter. <laughs> Judged by Twitter these days, we're, we're, we're all, aren't we? Every commentator. I mean, I do feel sorry for modern-day commentators because, I mean, John Motson and Barry Davis and, and, and Hugh Johns and Brian Moore, they never had to put up with this. They never have to put up with every time they do a commentary. Twitter, and it's all very tribal, is probably ripping you to ripping you to shreds. So I I never get it. I never get the guys, and I know a couple of them. I'm not going to name them. Who look at these this stuff at half time mm. in a match, and it could destroy your confidence. Mm. So now I've got a new rule. I never look at notifications after the game. I might put out a tweet of my own and just say my views on this game or, or some thought or mm. another, but I never look at the notifications. Wise man. I've learned better. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you're someone that uh, that clearly is uh, has enough humility to believe there is still learning to be oh, done. Oh, yeah, I think that, we're always learning still. That, yeah. that, that there is still feedback to be heard if it's there to, to appreciate when it's right to, to look at those notifications or not. Um, and I think that's really reassuring for a man who's had the career you've had and, and, and is still working at the level that you are, that actually, you know, every day's a school day and there's there's no resting on laurels. Um, and I think it's remaining that sharp and remaining that committed to the detail that, that has given you, you know, the longevity and the, and the consistent more contracts, uh, renewed contracts that you've had. Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for allowing me into your garden. Um, and uh, And thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed for that nice comment and I'll bring you into my next contract negotiation after that I think (laughs) Ian Dark thanks a lot are your smile muscles a little worked through? Uh, mine certainly were after listening to that. What a brilliant guest and a man who, I have to admit, I thought might be a little bit more confident, perhaps you know, very sure of himself. Um, and while Ian is clearly a man at the top of his game, it was his humility and humour that made me absolutely adore the hour or so I spent in his company. What an honour to, uh, to enjoy spending some time with Ian. And I hope you felt that, uh, that come across. From scrambling for his microphone to interview others, Ali, uh, to calling such an unexpected classic line on that USA match. Um, some wonderful tales in there and some great advice too. My immense thanks to Ian Dark. Um, please do leave that iTunes review, by the way, um, and keep the feedback coming on Twitter at Q Commentator or at Nick Heath Sport. There is one more episode to come in this series, but for now, take care of yourselves and I'll catch up with you soon.